Today's show is brought to you by City Running Tours. Are you looking for a unique way to explore New York City? Want to stay fit and have fun? Join the team at City Running Tours and sweat and sightsee on a guided running tour of New York City. The City Running Tours team is passionate about the city and loves to explore it through running. Join one of their scheduled routes or customize your own personal running experience. These sweat and sightsee tours are the ideal way to discover New York's most iconic neighborhoods. Julie from Calgary said, This was the best part of my trip. I learned so much about the city and felt like I was running with an old friend. These tours are also perfect for your next corporate or social event. Visit cityrunningtours.com slash New York City to book your city running tour today. Be sure to use coupon code BOWERYBOYS, no space, to receive 10% off your next tour. The Bowery Boys episode 300. Woo! Andrew Haswell Green, the forgotten father of New York City. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Welcome to 300. 300 shows. Wow. Three, <laughs> this must be a really important show, Greg. Who have we chosen for our big 300th episode? Tom, we have chosen Andrew Haswell Green. Pause. <laughs> pause for audience reaction. Uh, maybe there yeah. are gasps. Maybe there's confusion. I can actually see some question marks hovering above our listeners' heads boop, right boop, now. Boop, boop. Listen, we have talked about him in a number of shows, usually framed as, quote, the father of greater New York because of his involvement in the consolidation efforts and the creation, the ultimate creation of the five boroughs of New York City in 1898. This man Andrew Haswell Green has been called the Robert Moses of the 19th century, or I guess should we say, was it Moses the Green of the 20th century? Yeah. Essentially, he was an unelected official that amassed a great amount of power and became involved in so many of the most significant building projects of the late 19th century. And you're not understating that here. No. These are some of the key reasons that New York is what it is today and, and is considered such a great metropolis. And he was in the middle of all of that stuff. Now, Green was born on October 6th, 1820. So we wanted to kick off the 200th anniversary of his birth right now for a very simple reason. Andrew Haswell Green and this extraordinary legacy have been nearly forgotten. According to historian Kenneth T. Jackson... Green is arguably the most important leader in Gotham's long history, more important than Peter Stuyvesant, Alexander Hamilton, Frederick Law Olmsted, Robert Moses, and Fiorella LaGuardia. So why, then, is he so forgotten? Why do people get this kind of, like, glassy-eyed look when we mention his name? Yeah. Well, we, we want to clear things up, and that is the point of today's show. Unfortunately, uh, Green's full life, filled with public service and greatness, came to a really strange and tragic end in 1903, which we will, of course, address at the end of the show. But it's a, it's a confusing part of this story. 
Now, to help us out in celebrating the life of Mr. Green, we'll be joined later in the show by Michael Michonne, who served as the official Manhattan Borough Historian from 2006 to 2019. And Michael has been advocating for greater green awareness for decades now. For the greening of the city. He's like the ultimate green cheerleader. (laughs) So we'll be meeting up with Michael at a place that is very appropriate, um, one of the only places in the city that commemorates the life of Andrew Haswell Green will be meeting up with him at that spot at the end of the show. So join us as we remember the long life and legacy of Andrew Haswell Green, the forgotten father of New York City. Now, as I mentioned, Andrew Haswell Green was born on October 6th, 1820. Mm-hmm. So why don't you take us back to that point? Let's begin at the beginning. And you also mentioned that we're doing this to celebrate the 200th year. And some people might be confused by that since it's, you know, October of 19. We're, this is, we are kicking off the kick- celebration yeah. of his 200th year. Yes. Got it. Yeah. So he was born... Well, 199 years ago, on October 6th, in Worcester, Massachusetts, he was one of 11 children in a very prosperous Green family. His ancestors, uh, the Greens of Massachusetts, traced back to a certain Thomas Green, who came from England to the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1636. But by the time Andrew Haswell Green came to the scene um, in 1820, His family had become quite prosperous um, and lived on a lovely, sprawling estate outside of Worcester, which they called Green Hill. He was born to William Elijah Green and Julia Plimpton Green. And this was truly a beautiful place to grow up as a child. I mean, hundreds of acres on this family, you know, the large family home and farms and woods, etc., so this sounds like just an idyllic way to begin your life, an idyllic childhood here, and quite different from the life that he would build himself in the largest metropolis in the United States. Different in many ways, yeah. Um, but it would also, you know, you could argue, foreshadow certain aspects of his career. To quote from a 1913 biography, sort of the biography on Andrew Haswell Green called The Life and Public Services of Andrew Haswell Green by John Ford. That's Ford with two O's, if anybody's looking it up. Quote, The first 15 years of Mr. Green's life were spent on the old homestead at Green Hill. He was familiar with every nook and cranny of the old estate, knew every tree by name, and loved every feature of its varying landscape. In these large and picturesque areas over which he roamed free and unrestrained as a boy, and in which, after he removed to New York, he found refuge yearly from the cares and confinement of of the great city, we find the school in which was cultivated his love of nature and landscape art, which flowered later in the beautiful central park of the metropolis. So we can look at all of this as an inspiration for something that we all currently enjoy, actually. Yeah, I think, I guess anybody who loves Central Park today should be happy that Green grew up on Green Hill. (laughs) And so why did he leave this beautiful area and how did he come to New York? Well, when he was 15, you know, like most 15-year-olds, he had bigger plans. He was tired. Maybe he had counted all the trees. (laughs) But he moved to New York on April 30th, 
1835, accompanied by his sister Lucy. New York at the time had a population of about 250,000 people. Of course, it was mostly just the lower portion of the island of Manhattan. He got um, his first job at a store called Hinsdale and Atkins. The next year, in 1836, he took a job with textile importers. And what we know of him from these early years, it just sounds like, you know, he put his head to the grindstone, a very hard worker. Oh, yeah, and he even wrote about that in some of the world's most boring diary entries. I mean, he wrote about how hard he worked. The 1913 biography shares some of these entries about his early business training, his hard work ethic, and his abstinence. You know, he doesn't sound like he was really a big party animal. In fact, case in point, an entry on December 29th, 1838, he's 18 years old, Mm -hmm. and he writes... Drank a glass or two of wine, which obviously means probably four or five. (laughs) A thing so unusual with me that I deem it worthy of note here. I don't probably drink more than one or two a year. (laughs) So not exactly sowing his oats. But around this time, actually, Tom, I have an anecdote I think that will explain a certain aspect of his personality. The following year, when he was 19, he actually began a courtship with a woman named Dorothy Catherine Draper. Why does that name sound familiar to Bowery Boys and the First, first listeners? listeners? Yeah, so she's popped up a couple times. That This story came up while doing research on John William Draper, who was her brother, and at this time, a professor at the newly founded university on Washington Square, which would later be known as... New York University. Now, Draper at this time began working with another professor named Samuel Morse Mm -hmm. on a new chemical process known as photography. This woman, Dorothy Catherine Draper, was actually working as an assistant in his lab. So Dorothy Catherine Draper and Andrew Haswell Green uh, began a short courtship, but her brother called it off, A, because she was quite a few years older than him, which is interesting. And number two, he thought, John Draper thought that Andrew Haswell Green had no prospects in life, that he was kind of a, he was not going to go anywhere with his life. That's amazing. And and Dorothy Draper, as you recount, in that episode of The First, is the first female to be photographed. Ever in human history. And it would take place just a few months after their courtship was broken off. So would you say then that her brother prevented their relationship from... Developing? And I only bring it up because Andrew Haswell Green would be a bachelor his whole life. And this was the only anecdote ever found of him interested in anybody else. There are a couple accounts in that 1913. There are a couple more diary entries of, like, accompanying a young woman to Niblo's garden. But he's not—he's sort of turned off by the whole— Romantic life. And courtship scene. Yeah, Yeah, he's got got a business career um, that's beckoning. Unfortunately, there was a financial panic in 1837. Uh, So he floated around. He went home to Green Hill, back to his parents, trying to figure out what to do with his life. And then a couple years later, in 1841, Greg, he took a job in Trinidad, working, helping to run a sugar plantation. That's a a bit out of left field. Unfortunately, we, we don't have much time to get into it. However... He gave up the next year in 1842 and came back to New York City when he decided to scrap the mercantile career and to devote himself to studying law, which 
occupied him, obviously, the studies for a number of years, but he was sworn in as an attorney in 1845. And placing him on a track here where he would remain his whole life and, and would be able to gather the different responsibilities that he does for and, the next several decades. And that's an important point because we'll probably like stop talking about him as a lawyer, yeah. but throughout all of the stuff that we're about to get into that he had his hands in, he was still an attorney and an attorney for powerful landowners, managers of great estates. and Railroad also, people. He had really, really big, wealthy clients and they would end up making him a fortune. Needless to say, he had hundreds of leather-bound books in his house. <laughs> Early in his career, he would begin a friendship, a sort of mentorship with a man who would become one of the most prominent political figures in New York City in the 19th century, Samuel Tilden, who was only six years older than Green. And in 1846, Green moved into Tilden's office down on Pine Street. He started off with Tilden as his mentor, but then he becomes Tilden's assistant and finally his law partner in Tilden's practice which also specialized in like railroad concerns and railroad mergers that were mm -hmm. happening at the time. So Tilden and Grain were on tracks to become very wealthy lawyers. And very close associates their whole life. That's right. But this would also lure him in a little bit to actual politics. Yes, Green and Tilden were Democrats. Were Democrats, okay. That's right. Early on, he was attending meetings, uh, he, but he was sort of against he was turned off by Tammany Hall and by a lot of the waste that he saw and the bullying. So more of a reform Democrat. Yes, and called not Swallowtail. The Swallowtails, right. And not, but not so much associated with many of the negative connotations of a Tammany Hall and machine politics. So that dynamic existed within the Democratic Party. The Republican Party, they had their own sure. divisions as yeah. well. Mm -hmm. In the 1840s, um, he got elected as a school commissioner for his ward. And then he would actually start serving on the city school board in 1855. Um, he would prove himself to be incredibly like fiscally responsible and completely honest qualities, which would see him then promoted to the, the role of president of the school board multiple times in the 1850s. That's all well and good, but there's another huge project that's rising up right now. It's being formulated right now that Green is much more associated with. And that, of course, would be Central Park. Now, remember um, that Central Park was not, of course, part of the commissioner's plan. It was not in that grid plan in 1811. There, was no, there were no parks centrally located in Manhattan of any significant size. And pressure was growing as the city's population was increasing uh, to create some sort of grand park. So a resolution finally passed the city council and then the state legislature in 1853 which allowed for the altering of the city's map, of the grid plan, and setting aside land um, for the park between 5th and 8th Avenues and from 59th Street all the way up to 106th Street. Mm -hmm. And over the next few years, then, millions of dollars would be allocated to purchase all that land and to employ thousands of people to actually create this park, which is obviously a lot of power for whoever's in charge of mm -hmm. that. And initially, the, that power was placed in the hands of the city's mayor, Fernando Wood. Oof. Now, Wood is quite a scoundrel. There's a whole Barry Voice episode on him. That is, he's not exactly the most honest figure in politics of this period, let's just say. He would be exposed for selling city positions, right, mm -hmm. to people who could profit from them. Yeah. 
everybody knew this. The state knew this. Republicans up in the state legislature knew this. And so they stepped in because they were in power. And in 1857, they passed an act to create a board to oversee the actual construction and development of Central Park. This 11-member board would actually build the park. They'd be in charge of all the finances, et cetera. This would be known as the commissioners of Central Park. And it's very notable because this would be the city's first planning agency. Yeah, the Central Park Commission. Yes. And these 11 citizens, they would need to be incorruptible. They'd have, they wouldn't even take a salary. And Green had already developed a reputation here on the school board for being a very austere citizen, mm-hmm. uh, forthright, level-headed. And so he seemed like a natural pick. Obviously, his association with Samuel Tilden didn't do him any harm either. No. Um, so he was selected and elected treasurer of this commission, and he would spend years then navigating, you know, all of the political and the financial and the the topographical challenges of how to convert this rugged terrain into what would become Central Park. I'm assuming his fellow commissioners appreciated these skills that he brought to the job. So much so that they actually put him in charge of the whole thing. They made him president of the commission. But back when this commission is formed in 1857, they don't even have a plan, right? They don't even know what it's going to look like. No, they just had this sort of mandate to create this park. Um, As we discussed in our shows on Central Park about a thousand years ago, Mm -hmm. Greg, one of the first things that the commissioners did was to hold a contest in 1857 to choose a design for the park. So they collected all of these, you know, these designs and voted on them in April of 1858 with the winning submission, plan number 33, the Greensward plan, uh, submitted by Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Fox. It would thus be up to Green and his commissioners to make Olmsted and Vox's plans a reality. We should note, of course, that some of the, the actions that the committee took were also, of course, controversial as well including the displacement of about 1,600 people who were already living on the land that Mm -hmm. would become Central Park, and the demolition of Seneca Village, uh, which was an African-American community that was located around 8th Avenue and 82nd Street. And indeed was New York's first free black community. It was eradicated because of this plan. And you did a whole show on forgotten black communities for more information. Now, did Green... Did he actually change these plans in any way? I mean, did he have did he have some leverage here in making his own alterations to Olmsted and Vox's plans? There was one major change to the plan, the Greensward plan that he insisted upon, and that he'd actually been advocating for um, since their plan had been chosen. As early as January of 1858, Green let it be known that he didn't like the fact that Central Park stopped at 106th Street. Was there any reason just that he disliked this particular border? Well, you know, you know that area around 106th Street. It's extremely rocky. It's very rocky and very high elevations. Right. And, and that rock formation really stretches most of the way from 5th Avenue over to 8th Avenue. So most of that entire stretch. And then it slopes down northward. So... Green was pushing for the boundaries to be extended up to 110th Street so that the visitor to the park from the north 
could actually enter at a flat level and sort of look up at this majestic scene. And the rocks could be kind of worked with. They could be sculpted in ways to make it easier to climb up to them. Mm-hmm. And plus, from all the way up there, you could look down over the entrance of the park and over Harlem. But wouldn't this be expensive just to buy up more blocks for the park? Yeah, and the money had already been, you know, allocated for that. But but he argued that if it didn't become parkland, then the city would have to blast through those rocks, actually, and excavate them in order to drill in 106, 7th, 8th, mm-hmm. 9th, and 10th streets. And that it would actually cost more money for the city to figure out ways of making that into, you know, land that could be developed than it would be just to keep it natural parkland. Unfortunately, by that time, real estate speculation had increased the value of all those properties because of the park. Sure, yeah. To such a degree that those four blocks were so much more expensive comparatively to the rest of the blocks that had already been purchased. But anyway, in 1860, uh, the city would pay $1.1 million for those four blocks. And Central Park to this day ends on 110th Street. That's right. Now, you said 1860? Yeah, And by then, actually, people were already using the park. Parts of it were already opened in 1859. Although, of course, it would take decades for the entire Greensward plan to be implemented and developed. Because it's huge, right? (laughs) Now, um, by 1859, something really important happens to Mr. Green involving the Central Park Commission. They actually create a title for him. The title Comptroller of the Central Park Commission comptroller, like a CFO, like a financial officer. Yes, the financial officer. Well, by this point, they started thinking a little bit outside the box, literally. They started (laughs) to think that maybe the Central Park Commission could do more than just develop the park. After all, what is surrounding the park? There's really not that much in the 1850s. It hadn't really been built up. No, there was a grid plan on either side of the park, of course, but very little development. And it only extended up to 155th Street, and then it stopped. So Green took the concept of the Central Park Commission and basically turned it into a civic planning vehicle, not only for Upper Manhattan, but even for portions of Westchester County across the river. Hmm. And this was the state, the state legislature, who's elevating his position and giving him this power? Yeah. And he's a Democrat, and the state is mostly Republican. But he is a very, very financially savvy person. And he performed his duties with very characteristic, on-top-of-it, penny-pinching supervision. He was an excellent time manager. So they saw an idea to further kind of strip some power away from the Democrats by having Upper Manhattan all developed by this same commission run by this very penny-pinching financial whiz. And a financial whiz who already knew many of the landowners in Upper Manhattan. Yeah. Maybe represented them or their concerns in his law firm. They trusted him that, hey, look, if this land is going to be developed anyway, it would be better to have it developed by somebody who has our best interests in mind. No, that's exactly right. And because of this, so much of Upper Manhattan is shaped by plans or proposals that Green himself was involved in and done very frugally. As Mr. Olmsted said of Green, quote, not a dollar, not a cent is got from under his paw that is not wet with his blood and sweat. 
ew. Um, but what were what were these projects in Upper Manhattan? Well, let's start actually down here next to the park uh, with a grand circle that was developed at the corner of the park at 59th Street and the southwest corner. I think you and I might call that today Columbus Circle, yes. Greg. Now, as you also might know from a podcast a year ago that you recorded, Broadway mm-hmm. cuts through that circle and up the Upper West Side. Well, thanks to Green and the and the commission, it was widened and straightened as it heads up Manhattan. He also, as that street goes up further north, passes by the development of places that would become new parkland on the west side, including Riverside Park, and then further up the island, Morningside Park. In 1866, they even began developing grid plans and parks for the upper tip of Manhattan, Inwood and Washington Heights. Remember that show we did a couple months ago on the the secrets of upper Manhattan? We talked about how Broadway had stopped at 155th, just on the south side of Trinity's Uptown Cemetery. Yeah. So he was involved then in the extension of Broadway up and through that. Yes, intimately involved, actually. But all of this development is still on Manhattan Island. But you mentioned that his influence and and projects actually crossed over the Harlem yes. River and into the into Westchester County. At, right. And this is actually we're going to get to the seed of like what his biggest idea is in through this entire show here because it's the idea that New York doesn't necessarily have to mean Manhattan. Right. That it can mean something greater. Greater New York. Yes. He looked across the water for a specific reason. And this is another interesting parallel he has with Robert Moses, where he saw the development of Upper Manhattan and those southern quarters of Westchester County as being critical to commuters, to create desirable zones for residents or, as Mike Wallace says in the book Gotham, for residential gentry preserves. This kind of sounds like the development of affluent suburbs. Yeah, I mean it's 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 definitely related to the idea of improving not only, you know, the quality of living in those suburbs, but really the ease of getting back and forth between New York and those suburbs. As a result, Green greatly beefed up bridge connections between Upper Manhattan and Westchester County. In fact, Washington Bridge, which is at 188th Street over the Harlem River. Not George Washington. Not the George Washington Bridge, but an earlier one on the other side, was developed mostly because of Andrew Haswell Green. He also even proposed a grid plan in association with the railroads of commuter towns in southern Westchester County, meaning Kingsbridge, West Farms, and Morrisania. Sorry, but uh, what year is this? Well, he became the comptroller in 1859. So this is throughout the next decade of the 1860s. So obviously a lot of this gets slowed down during the Civil War, but ramps back up near the late 1860s. And while all of this is happening outside of Central Park, he's still developing Central Park. Oh, that's still that's still moving along r- rather nicely at this point. This is where he feels kind of like Robert Moses, right? <laughs> yeah. There's just projects all over the place. To quote from a report that Andrew Haswell Green wrote in 1868 in regards to why Westchester County was so important to all of this other stuff, quote, the lower part of the county of Westchester lies adjacent to the city of New York and is separate from it by a river of a width 
easily bridged or tunneled. It is so intimately connected with and dependent upon the city of New York that unity of plan for improvements on both sides of the river is essential. So he's anticipating here that the city is going to grow north Mm -hmm. and that this just is inevitable and that the city needs to plan for that expansion. Yeah. Now, let's be fair here. We're we're really giving a nice shine here to his reputation, but it's not 100% altruistic. Green, as we said, has his private law practice, and he's representing railroad companies and wealthy real estate developers. And although there really is no evidence to say that he was doing their business, Mm -hmm. radically doing their bidding over the public good, you can't say that they weren't at least bending his ear. But of course, he would be proven right because many of those areas that you're talking about here in Southern, uh, in today's South Bronx, would actually be annexed into New York City in the 1870s. Well, yeah, so by 1874... These areas, they're west of the Bronx River, but these areas of Kingsbridge, West Farm, Morrisania, would be annexed to become administratively a part of New York City. In fact, it would be called the Annexed District, which today is part of the Bronx. But can we back up, Greg, to the park? Sure. Um, You know, we're in the 1870s, um, the beginning of the Gilded Age. And we know that this is also a time when many of New York's most important cultural institutions were also looking into developing a presence around Central Park. Mm-hmm. Was he involved in that planning as well? Not only was he involved with that, but he's sort of central into that idea of institutions using the park it's like a breadbasket of New York culture that he thought that they would all be part of the park in some way. And that it was part of the park planning to include them? Yes. And many of the institutions that today are home in or around Central Park are developed during this period in the 1860s to 1870s. And with Green basically guiding them by the hand, many of them. Let me go through a list, shall we? And some of them, by the way, are in association with an older institution called the New York Historical Society. And they would also play a big part in the development of many many of these as well. But Green is the central figure here. For instance, the Central Park Zoo was essentially developed from a menagerie of animals, which began collecting in 1864 around that old arsenal. And we talked in our Central Park shows about how people would actually just, like, leave exotic animals yes. <laughs> right there at the arsenal. So, Like, oh, that monkey wasn't working anymore in my apartment. Don't know why. I'm going to gift it. Yes, and it would be, like, ox, anything from, like, oxens to stray cats. Well, so anyway, uh, <laughs> at that spot to this day is the Central Park Zoo, of which Green played a big hand in developing. Then you had, speaking of animals, although more of the extinct variety, the American Museum of Natural History. Green was also a founder of this institution. Its roots trace here to the Central Park Arsenal. They moved to a headquarters off of Central Park in 1877 in land that was actually also owned by Central Park. So there's the Central Park Zoo, uh, the Museum of Natural History, I'm feeling an art museum coming in here. (laughs) Yes. Now, the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, has a kind of like a a little bit of a far-flung history. And so Green did not like found it. But in 1880, 
they moved onto a site in Central Park that had been proposed by Green as the site for an art museum back in 1868. So he sort of prepared... Yes, he could have laid the groundwork so that when the Met sort of had developed by this period, they moved to this very spot where Green had basically wanted an art museum to be. And so much of this is happening in the 1860s, but 1870s, I know, yeah. which is a sort of notorious time of profiteering and graft in New York City politics. Yes, thanks to, you know, Boss Tweed and the Tweed Ring. Now, How in the world were they getting <laughs> these things done without the treasuries being raided? Well... Well, because up into the 1860s, the, the Central Park Commission was state-run and Republican. But in 1870, it actually, because of Boss Tweed and Democratic politics, it was essentially passed over to being city-run and was essentially disbanded, although many of Green's projects would be taken over by other departments. So they, they'd all kind of keep active. But what's but happening is the Tweed is now kind of sweeping in and using these projects for his own devices. And he has dissolved this oversight committee that Green has been running. Yes, because he doesn't like oversight. <laughs> and he doesn't like Green. No. So Boss Tweed and his cronies are getting rich, just generally speaking, in New York City through all these various building projects, slowing them down to line their pockets. Throughout the 1870s, just a cesspool of, of graft and bribery. Like the ultimate cesspool, the ultimate swamp. Well, in 1871, there was a massive reform movement to combat New York's rampant corruption. And one of the movement's leaders happens to be Samuel Tilden. Oh. Green's boss, of course. And um, his partner. So essentially what happens as this committee of 70, they're all very prominent and wealthy individuals. They essentially begin cutting off the purse strings that are financially feeding many of these Tammany projects. And then in 1871, Andrew Haswell Green, who's got a little extra time now that the Central Park Commission is being taken away, was appointed the city comptroller. He began as the deputy comptroller and became the actual comptroller. That is such a burn, by the way, on Tammany Hall. You know, the boss tweet basically dissolves Green's oversight in 1870, and then the next year Green is appointed yes. to oversee tweet. And keep in mind this reputation that he has of being rather austere and, and kind of penny-pinching because not only did he come in and turn off some of the faucets... Uh, for some of these projects and turn on all other faucets for, for areas of the government that weren't getting money. But he exposed Tweed's dirty books here. He's like the ultimate whistleblower. Yes, no, I mean, he really is, actually. That's interesting you say that because around this time was this expose in the New York Times. And it's because of that expose, it's because of the work of Tilden and the committee and the financial tightness of... Andrew Haswell Green, that Boss Tweed is arrested in the fall of 1871. And as we discussed in our recent show on Tweed and on Tweed's courthouse, he would then break out of prison in 1876, be recaptured, and then die in jail in 1878. But back to Green. Yes, Green was still the comptroller until 1876, partially responsible for some real austerity measures that got the city back into a semblance of normal operation. 
because of this, actually, Green became incredibly unpopular because, like, he's doing this to everyone. He's like, he's basically nobody's friend during this period because he understands, uh, like, the ship needs to be righted. He's even signing off with his own credit and good oh, name yes. uh-huh. uh, to restore the city's credit. He's putting his own reputation, his own financial health on the line here to help the city out. Um, and the only reason he was able to really do it is because of his good friend, Samuel Tilden, who in 1875 became governor of New York. The following year, Tilden almost became president of the United States in one of our country's most contested elections, and one I hope that we look into further in a future show. The, the great election of 1876. Yes, which of course instead gave us President Rutherford B. Hayes. Fine, a fine Ohioan, by the way. <laughs> oh, okay. But it's remarkable you keep bringing up Tilden because he's still, he's still got this Samuel Tilden connection. Yeah, They're yeah. still partners. Well, I like to think of Green as Marcy to Samuel Tilden's peppermint patty. Like, that's their relationship to <laughs> Who's me. Who's Pigpen? <laughs> Boss, Boss Tweed, I think, actually. That's pretty easy. Um, so take that what take that to mean whatever you like, but they had an extremely close friendship and, and were close allies for the entirety of Tilden's life. So then when Tilden dies in 1886, Green is naturally there as an executor of Tilden's massive fortune. Now, this is very complicated, but Tilden had intended his fortune to be used to fund a public library. Because New York didn't have a true public library. There wasn't really a public library as we know of it today at all. They were mostly private. But this money was greatly depleted by family members who contested this will, which, well, the remaining funds were put into what was called the Tilden Trust, of which Andrew Haswell Green was one of the trustees. They essentially pulled in two other libraries. The Lennox Library, which was a collection owned by a bibliophile, James Lennox, and then the Astor Library, which was a private library owned by the Astor family and, of course, in Astor Place. So with these two libraries put together with the Tilden Trust, they would form the New York Public Library. The cornerstone of which of the first library would be laid in 1902 at 42nd Street and 5th Avenue, the, the main building of the New York Public Library. On the site of the former Croton Reservoir. Yeah. And this idea, the New York Public Library, was formulated by the trustees of the Tilden Trust led by Andrew Haswell Green. And Tom, I found out that fact from a book that I checked out of the New York Public Library, a book about Samuel Tilton and Andrew Haswell Green. So it's a very meta it is fact so meta. There. It is so meta. And there is so much more meta to his life. We'll get to the rest of the story after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. 
The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And now, Greg, we we have come to what is probably the big thing, all caps, that Andrew Haswell Green is known for and remembered for today. It's amazing to think that all the things that we just discussed <laughs> are secondary to this important occasion. Right, because this thing is a thing that has him remembered today as the, quote, father of greater New York. And I'm talking, of course, about the consolidation of much of the metropolitan area into one giant new metropolis called New York City. Greg, could you remind us of what what these pieces, these disparate communities were that were brought together to form uh, New York City? All right. Well, obviously, we have these two massive cities, the city of New York, mm-hmm. which was all of Manhattan and the Annex District. That's right. Brooklyn, a massive city across the way, of course. And all of Kings County. And all of, right, it was Brooklyn and what would become all of Brooklyn or Kings County. Then you had Staten Island Mm -hmm. or Richmond County. Mm -hmm. Then you actually had Queens County. You had Long Island City, Astoria, and many other communities that were here in Queens County. On the, the western section of Queens County. And then much of lower Westchester County. I think you got that right. I should, I hope after 300 episodes, <laughs> and we did a whole program, in fact, it was 150, episode 150, on the consolidation, but can you remind us of where the idea came from? Well, the idea for consolidating these municipalities into this one, you know, supercharged city, it had been floating around for a long time, but it really picked up speed in the second half of the 19th century as this entire metropolitan area was booming, 
because it wasn't just the population that was booming, it was also business that was booming, shipping that was booming, and then railroads, you know, and industry in general was just exploding. They were growing so quickly without any proper planning or coordination between these different cities. So that wasn't really good for business. It wasn't good for New York. It wasn't really good for the small communities either. Just as an example, take shipping. Imagine all of the piers, okay, that were in the, in the warehouses that were on Manhattan's west side and parts of the East River too. They were all competing, you know, for business with each other and they were competing with piers in other cities like in Brooklyn and out on Staten Island. What if, you know, those competing municipalities actually enacted laws that hurt the the businesses or the profits in the in the other cities or in New York? It could be a big lose-lose situation. It was mm-hmm. really not in anybody's best interest. And that's the ports, which Green was also obsessed with, but yes. it would also affect the railroads. All big businesses, including the railroads, right. And Andrew Haswell Green, of course, was in tight, you know, with the railroads and their concerns. And he also represented a lot of real estate holdings. These people were really, like, directly impacted by the way that the city was growing and the way that the city wasn't necessarily planning for it. Mm -hmm. And the way that things could be improved if there was a more coordinated plan to all of that growth. So couldn't a unified city, all of those communities brought together into one larger city, couldn't they do a better job of providing the necessary utilities and the streets and the services to the residents in those newly developing areas. A new unified city could actually develop with with a plan. And Andrew Haswell Green had a plan for that. (laughs) And that plan was essentially consolidation to make all of it one city. Right, mostly all of it that shared port. Um, And shared waterfront access. And clearly he had already dabbled in this a little bit with the Annex District. But when did things get really big here with this idea? He was actually advocating for consolidation in 1868, seriously pushing this idea. As the historian David Hammack wrote in his authoritative history of consolidation, a book called Power and Society, Greater New York at the Turn of the Century, quote, A general plan for the region would reduce both present and future costs, help owners develop their land, protect investors and taxpayers, and accommodate downtown real estate and mercantile interests as well. So you see who Green is thinking about here. Mm -hmm. He's thinking about the, the landowners, the investors, the taxpayers, downtown real estate, mercantile interests. All of them, he was saying, could benefit from a consolidated city. But this didn't get rolling in 1868. No, it was it was too early. And he had other things to do anyway. He was still building Central Park and developing, you know, the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Well, I guess Tweed just couldn't profit off of consolidation <laughs> at that time. But if we jump forward 20 years, the talk of consolidation resurfaces. Well, by 1883, the Brooklyn Bridge is now open. So now we actually have a physical connection between these two major cities. And those two cities are already sharing, you know, certain services and departments. They're cooperating in ways that kind of underscored how consolidation would work and could be helpful. And his plan was was gaining the powerful backing of the Chamber of Commerce. Mayor Abram Hewitt in 1888 endorsed the plan, but it would be shelved again. 
And all of this sort of like talk of his plan would would lead his detractors because there were many who were not into the thought of a consolidated city. Well, it sounded complicated, yeah. Right. Many would just dismiss it as, quote, Green's hobby. Well, I mean, you know, many probably saw it as a power grab of some way. So how exactly did it get finally to fruition? Well, the next year in 1889, the city was growing so quickly in such a disorganized manner, leading civic leaders to wonder how New York was ever going to compete with Chicago or with Mm -hmm. Philadelphia. That Green pushed lawmakers up in Albany to create a commission to officially study the issue of consolidation. And that was called the Greater New York Commission. It would fail, but it would finally be passed the next year in 1890. And they would, of course, appoint Green to lead it. And that commission would put forth a plan that would include all the same territory that he'd outlined back in 1868. But of course, it would also alter how the government worked so dramatically that it would be politically explosive, it wouldn't go anywhere, and it would create all kinds of you know, problems and enemies for him. So he would spend years, basically, in the early 1890s trying to get a vote through Albany while also building popular support back home, trying to like get people on board this consolidated train. But finally, in 1894, they succeeded in convincing the state legislature to approve a voter referendum, they would now take the question of consolidation to the voters. So all these communities that would be affected Mm -hmm. finally got to vote on whether they wanted to be part of this in 1894? Yes, and this was a non-binding vote. You know, it wasn't like if they approved it, they would automatically be like beamed into the city of New York (laughs) City. uh But it was meant to show the the level of support by the residents for this plan. And it really wasn't that obvious which way it would go because there was so much at stake for people, especially in Brooklyn. And we just spent two episodes in Brooklyn Heights and we we Mm -hmm. talked about how, you know, in Brooklyn Heights, there was really like an anti- yeah. consolidation feeling. Well, this was essentially like an, a sort of a reverse Brexit, right? It was a non-binding r- referendum if, if people wanted to join together into this greater New York concept. Right, or, right, should they join the union? Should, yes. they, jo- <laughs> should they join New York City? Um, and in Brooklyn Heights, you know, there was a sentiment that they saw themselves, many of the leaders saw themselves as a community that was mostly Protestant and white, it was a city of churches. It was not like New York City. It wasn't teeming with immigrants like New York City um, and controlled by evil Tammany bosses. Well, that that was only because those political leaders in Brooklyn were underrepresenting the huge number of immigrants who had already settled in Brooklyn and apparently did not have a voice that, in politics. Right. Yeah, they were sort of misrepresenting the diversity that actually did exist in Brooklyn. Yeah. Although they had a reason to criticize the corruption. That sure, took place sure. But a, there was corruption in Brooklyn also. That- yeah. And they were also afraid of losing control over, you know, self-governance, yeah, which is sure. understandable. But meanwhile, they also forgot to mention that Brooklyn was like up to its eyeballs in debt and they desperately needed to fund new services, city services and build streets and utilities. They actually couldn't afford them. And, and New York had money, you know, there were, there were pro-consolidation Brooklynites who were mostly property owners who actually saw New York as a way to access this, like, badly needed cash. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile in Manhattan, a strong majority actually was pro-consolidation. 
And so the, finally the vote in 1894 came out in favor of consolidation. That's right. The vote in November of 1894. That would be 125 years ago, wow. Greg. 176,000 for it, 131,000 against it. It won in almost all municipalities except for two villages in Westchester. Although in Brooklyn, it only won by fewer than 300 votes or 0.2%. That's pretty close. Of the vote. So basically it was split even. Finally, in 1896, after, after much political drama, state lawmakers passed the Greater New York Bill, uh, which contained many of Green's original ideas and his proposed city boundaries, and which set January 1st, 1898, as the date for the creation of this new city. So Green would then serve on the committee that actually wrote the new city's charter, which would be passed in 1897, all of this in time for that January 1st, 1898 deadline. And on that day, New York jumped in size from being a city of 60 square miles to one of 300 square miles, making it the second largest city in the world behind London. Now, what's even more remarkable than what you've just said, like the fact that Green was spearheading that, is that the whole time he was engaged in other civic endeavors. And let's not forget that he still had a law firm. Now, you remember when I mentioned Central I don't Park? think he was on Facebook much. <laughs> no, no, no. He w I think he would have liked social media, but he didn't have it back then, no. So you remember I mentioned uh, Central Park Zoo? Well, at that time, Green, he didn't really like the zoo, actually. He didn't want it in the middle of Central Park, but he wanted a ideal world-class zoological society that would be separate from the park. So this was a big ambition of, of his starting in the late 1860s. Well, flash forward many decades, as the president of the New York Zoological Society, Green is the president, in 1896, Green, along with Henry Fairfield Osborne, located a site near the Bronx River, in the soon-to-be borough of the Bronx, for a New York zoological garden. And with buildings designed by arch the architecture firm of Heinz and Lafarge, the Bronx Zoo would open its doors in November of 1899. It's amazing he was still able to have a hand in starting and creating so many institutions even while he was running politically risky maneuvers like pushing for consolidation. Yeah, I mean, keep that in mind, that's the kind of gambit that he's playing here. When I also mention one other great accomplishment, one other important aspect of his per personality that's often forgotten, and that's Andrew Haswell Green, the preservationist. Oh. Now, Tom, are there any major landmarks that we've missed <laughs> in this show that we haven't name dropped? <laughs> oh, I have one. Which one? The New York... City Hall. Oh, the building which, of course, opened in 1812. Yes, the building, the actual City Hall. We're not talking just the politics of it, but the physical building. Well, it was actually in danger of being demolished in the 1890s. The, the city was, you know, developing ideas for what would become the civic center, you know, where all the mm -hmm. courthouses, the courthouse district. And the municipal building, etc. But one of these major ideas was the elimination of City Hall. It just was wildly inadequate for, for the functions that, like, poured through its doors every day. But Green and the community 
had a real heartfelt connection with this building. He ended up writing an article called The Preservation of the Historic City Hall of New York. In 1893, he wrote that, and by the spring of 1894, he had amassed so much power, his voice had such authority, that plans were called off, and we have New York City Hall to this day. Are you saying that Green saved New York City Hall? Oh, Green not only saved New York City Hall, Tom, for in the following spring of March of 1895, Green co-founded and became the first president of the American Scenic and Historic Preservation Society, the very first preservation organization, not only for New York City, but for New York State. So a little bit like today's Landmarks Preservation Commission? It actually had very slightly different goals. From from an article in the New York Sun at its formation on April 7th, 1895. The trustees of Scenic and Historic Places and Objects, which was the society's original name, the trustees met yesterday at 214 Broadway and organized. The gentlemen who have associated themselves under this title propose to do an estimable patriotic and civic work for the benefit and renown of New York State. These objects are the preservation of historic spots in the state and the improvement and adornment of picturesque ones for the fostering of patriotic sentiment and the education of the public taste as regards the beautiful in nature and its influence on community life. So so a protector of beauty and patriotism until the end. Yes. Green and the organization would go on to preserve many great sites, many with Revolutionary War connections, such as Hamilton Grange. He even a couple years later helped form a women's auxiliary who went on to protect and preserve places like France's Tavern. Many, many, many years later, this very organization would be responsible for the preservation of the estate and observatory in Hastings-on-Hudson of the, the estate of John William Draper, whose sister, Dorothy Catherine Draper, Mr. Green, had so courted many, many decades before. Wow. Now, Dorothy Catherine Draper died in December of 1901. Andrew Haswell Green died less than two years later in November of 1903, tragically under some very unfortunate, I think we could even describe a very freak circumstance. On November 13th, 1903, he was returning to his home on Park Avenue and 40th Street when he was confronted by a man, a man named Cornelius Williams and shot five times. Shots which killed him. Now, this was a grotesque crime of mistaken identity. Williams, who was a very disturbed man here, had assassinated Andrew Haswell Green, thinking he was actually seeing, he was the lover of this woman that he was obsessed with named Bessie Davis, a woman that Williams believed was greatly slandering him throughout the city. So he was doing some payback, but it turns out the Green, of course, didn't even know who this woman was. You know, she lived somewhere else in the city under an alias. And Day and Bessie Davis was completely unfamiliar with this murdered man, except through Green's own renown that she read in the newspaper. There was no connection here. This was an absolute senseless tragedy. And he died instantly on that day at age 83. Now, Green's funeral was held a few days later at 
Brick Presbyterian Church, which was close to his home over on 37th Street and 5th Avenue. Now with that, I think, Greg, that we should head up to Central Park, around 106th Street, Mm -hmm. climb up to the Andrew Haswell Green Memorial Bench, where we will be meeting up with Michael Michonne, who served as the Manhattan Borough Historian from 2006 to 2019. Michael's been leading the charge on recognizing and celebrating the legacy of Andrew Haswell Green. Tom, we have arrived in Northern Central Park. That's Uh, right. We are actually in one of the highest spots in Central Park, but we are about to meet uh, Michael Michonne at the actual Andrew Haswell Green Bench. You can access this spot, actually, if you come around, uh, if you enter from the uh, 110th Street side, kind of snaking around the Harlem Mirror and then up past the East Drive, uh, watch out for joggers and cyclists, and cross over and and climb up, 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 and here we are following a path toward a stone bench, and and Michael is waiting for us on the bench that includes an inscription, and we're going to talk about that with him. Hello, Michael. Hello, guys. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, Michael, you were borough historian from Manhattan Borough historian from 2006 until just this year, 2019, and one of your biggest passions was the life and career of Andrew Haswell Green. Correct. Uh, this is something that I sort of got interested in before I was borough historian. Back in um, 1997, uh, I was working for the city of New York. I produced a documentary about the consolidation of the boroughs. Mm. And as we'll see in Andrew Green's story, the consolidation plays prominently in his life and career uh, and accomplishments. And so when I discovered this man, I realized, boy, here's somebody who needs to be appreciated uh, and who isn't appreciated. But I guess he's appreciated in some sorts in this bench, at least. He's commemorated in this bench. So could you kind of describe what this bench is or how it even got here? Sure. When Green died under bizarre circumstances, Mm -hmm. uh, with all of his admirers and his accomplishments, naturally there was talk about commemorating him uh, with some sort of a monument or memorial or that sort of thing. But I will say that those bizarre circumstances of his death probably contributed to the fact that so little was done immediately after his death because he died under this sort of suspicion of living a double life. Was was he really the choir boy that everyone thought he was? And people thought, well, maybe that's the truth. And so there were those admirers and defenders who are sort of trying to charge ahead with some sort of a memorial or monument, uh, but they had trouble raising money. They had trouble really sort of getting a movement going. And so it wasn't until months and months later when the truth came out that people realized that Andrew Green was a totally innocent victim of this murder. And by then sort of the momentum had worn off a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and now, that there had been mistaken identity. Yes. Yeah, so, so this was a case of mistaken identity. And another, another factor about the memorialization of Green uh, is the fact that he was a little bit past his prime, and most of his contemporaries had either passed away or were very elderly, and, and they were of a mindset like Green, uh, a sort of this sort of Yankee modesty mindset. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't go around, if you're wealthy, you don't go around showing it in flash, being flashy and promoting yourself. And so the people who wanted to give Green a monument wanted a very modest monument, which frankly is what happened. There were other grander ideas that were put out there, but none of them really caught fire. 
Well, we're actually just leaning against the monument right now. Why don't we just take a seat here? And I suppose we could even read it. So it says 1820 to 1903. So it's got his his dates of his life on it. In honor of Andrew Haswell Green, directing genius of Central Park in its formative period, father of greater New York, this eminence was named Andrew H. Green Hill. These five symbolical trees were planted and this seat was erected. Um, it's referring to a different hill, though, right? It is and referring trees. to a different hill. It's referring to different symbolical trees. Uh, yeah, I mean, there well. are some there are yeah. trees here, yeah. but I don't think they're, they don't look very old. No, no. So, uh, they look symbolical, though. Yeah. Let's, let's get to 1929, mm-hmm. when this bench was actually dedicated. I've got a picture if you'd like to see. He does, um, yeah. And it was installed not in the location it's in now. It was a little further east of here, where there's currently a Central Park Conservancy composting operation. Uh, The bench was moved sometime in the 70s or the 80s. By then, the five symbolical elm trees, Mm -hmm. and by the way, symbolical because they each represent a borough Mm -hmm. of greater New York, uh, had died of Dutch elm disease. So it's just... We won't read anything into that. (laughs) Okay. So, right. During the 70s. Yeah, somewhere. You know, there's the whole Dutch elm blight. Uh So... So when they moved the bench, they moved the bench without trees. They moved it over here across the main drive to this other hill, very obscurely placed. And it sat here, basically forgotten, no trees for quite a while. Uh, And then in 1998, I figured, you know what, we're celebrating the consolidations 100th year anniversary, Andrew Green deserves his trees. And so I approached the New York City Parks Commissioner, Andrew Stern, uh, and he he was a fan of Andrew Green. He knew who he was, and he thought that was a great idea. So we had a little ceremony here to plant some, not elms, but I think they're maples. Mm -hmm. Some might think this is sort of quote out of the way, but there is a certain significance to having this bench here in the northern section of Central Park. And it's a very high elevation. It's one of the highest uh, areas here in Central Park, but there's significance to having it placed here. Absolutely. Um, So when Green was in charge of the commission for designing and creating Central Park, the, the original plans called for the northern edge of the park to be 106th Street. And uh, he saw that this land, which is pretty lock, rocky, rough mm-hmm. land, uh, was relatively inexpensive to acquire and would add a sort of rustic feature to the park. And so he pushed for extending the northern boundary to its current 110th Street edge. It also makes you think of, like, what would New York City be like without having had Andrew Green work on it. You know, what would Central Park be like? Well, one thing, it would be shorter, right? It would not be as long. (laughs) Is there any way to sort of also speculate, because he did so much more than just Central Park, Right. how the city, uh, how in other ways the city might have been different? Oh, boy. Yeah. When When you lead a campaign like this, to sort of raise awareness for a person like this, you really have to sort of work on your elevator pitch and describe who this man was and what he did. And so my 30-second encapsulation of Andrew Green, he was a master planner, reformer, and preservationist. And each of those aspects of his career, Mm -hmm. he excelled at. And I also say he helped transform New York into a world-class city. And that is not an overstatement. I mean, Central Park is a world-class park. It did not exist. Nothing like it existed until Green helped get it done. I'm not going to say he was the only one, you know, but he he was a leading figure in getting it done. 
it does also make me think that Green was very much like aligned with many of the commercial, mercantile, real estate interests of the city, right? He was like he, he, a power broker, to borrow that term. Yes. But, I mean, he was he was in with the, the city's elite, elite and yes. powerful. Yes. Was he, he also concerned about, like, I mean, he over, he was in New York during this huge immigrant-fueled population boom. Was he also concerned about, say, the people without power in the city? Um not in a terribly overt way. So let's 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 ratchet back your question a little bit for mm-hmm. a second. First it must be understood that this sort of power elite green was one of them. I mean, right. he was he was a lawyer and he wasn't an outrageously wealthy man, but he was certainly a successful man and he traveled in those circles. But people look at that and they historians look at that and they say, "Oh, green was green traveled in these circles, but he was different. He was Unlike a lot of these fellows who were very sort of flashy with their wealth, Green was incredibly modest. He was a flinty old Yankee lawyer from Worcester, Massachusetts. He was honest as the, as the day is long, tight with a buck to a fault. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about some of that He was later. no fun. He was no fun. His <laughs> yeah. idea of a good time was going home and reading Milton. He loved Milton. Right. He once said that he would rather be the man who erects a statue to Milton than be the mayor of New York City. I mean, so. And, and this, I think, goes to, I think, one of the aspects of why he is, quote, forgotten today. Because you look at, compare him to someone who is, like, utterly corrupt, like Boss Tweed. Well, he was a fun guy, exactly. Boss Tweed. And he actually helped a lot of people who had just arrived and who needed, you know, immediate assistance. Right. And Boss so Tweed. To, to refer to what you're saying and what you mentioned before, Green did not, so he was not among the social reformers of that right. time. He wasn't out there to tear down tenements. He wasn't out there to feed the poor. He wasn't doing those things. But you can make the argument that, in effect, he was doing that sort of thing from the top down Mm -hmm. as opposed from the bottom up. By making the city more livable. Exactly. Improving infrastructure. Exactly. All of those things. The unsexy stuff. The unsexy stuff and the scandal-free stuff. So, for example, if the city is not wasting money and the city is not uh, stealing money or politicians aren't stealing money, that means there's more money to go around to do what the city is supposed to be doing. And as a rule, he generally supported these progressive measures. He would be considered sort of part of the progressive wing of the party of his time. He was a Democrat. Now, I think one fair argument to make against why Andrew Green isn't better known is the fact that He's so related and so associated with so much policy that it's hard to sometimes see a personality behind a lot of this. Uh, so who who was he as a uh, man, would you desc- I mean, would you say? Aside yeah. from a Milton lover. A Milton lover, yeah. Uh, and that, that in, this, in itself tells you he's a little bit of a fuddy-duddy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he was a, I like to describe him as a flinty New England lawyer. I mean, he was, if you read his writing, oh, it's so difficult because he's a lawyer. Uh, he makes some wonderful points, wonderful arguments, but boy, oh boy, you have to untangle the clauses and the phrases within it. Uh, he wasn't exactly a flashy guy. He, uh, his probably biggest personal flaw was that he was such a skinflint. He was a cheapskate. Uh, and he was a cheapskate in, in his personal life, although he did tend to indulge his spending at the Worcester home where his family resided. 
But it, this also came to bite him in the butt, so to speak, when he was the controller of the city of New York. His, his biggest critics said, hey, Andy, you got to spend money in order to pull the city out of this threat of bankruptcy to sort of sort of supercharge the economy a little. And he wouldn't do that. And he would argue about money as well with Olmsted and Vox, right, during the actual planning of Central Park. Absolutely, yeah. They wanted uh, more money, and he just wouldn't give it to them. He wouldn't give it to them, yeah. He, and that, that's probably one of the major causes for the rift, uh, the monumental rift between Olmsted and Green. It should be said, Green loved Vox, and Vox was Green's friend to the end. But Olmsted was a different story entirely. Olmsted, you know, was a, a genius, a little bit of a free-spending mad genius. And so whenever Green would sort of slash his budget for trees or topsoil or whatever, uh, Olmsted uh, really chafed under that authority. Maybe Olmsted's laughing today that Green's bench is placed <laughs> way out of the way. <laughs> yes, maybe. We'll see. But perhaps while he didn't have the most charismatic personality. Would you describe him a little bit like a Zelig-like figure? Because I have to say, in researching the story, he kept popping up in every kind of major New York event from the from the second half of the 19th century. He seemed to have some involvement in every little aspect of, uh, of putting the city together during this period. Well said. I mean, it must be remembered, like Robert Moses, Andrew Green had a 50-year career, a 50-year career. So anything that was involved with city planning or infrastructure usually had some hand of Andrew Green within it. And it seems fair to say that he isn't really remembered by many today. There wasn't a line of people waiting to get to this bench this morning. (laughs) How? And you would like to change that. Sure. Well, first, let's, besides the bench, there are some other things in his memory. So uh, there's this bench in Central Park. There's a portrait of the man that very fittingly hangs in in City Hall, which uh, is terrific. And there is an island near Niagara Falls, on the edge of Niagara Falls, called Green Island. Everyone presumes it's because it's covered with grass, but it's really named for Andrew Green. Andrew Green was the president of the Niagara Falls Park Commission for decades to help uh, create that park. Then, of course, uh, there's this new park on the east side near the Queensboro Bridge, named for him. This is one of the more modern uh, memorializations of Green's memory. And then probably the most notable thing is that there is a bar called Haswell Green's that opened up a couple of years ago. uh, And it is a shrine to the man. Go in there and it's this sort of curio shop of Andrew Green's life and career. It's a fascinating place. Where is that located? We have to go right after. Where is it? It's in the theater district. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for taking the time. So much fun. To meet us here at this prestigious bench. Well, and thank you for the work that you do and for joining us on the Bowery Boys. It was totally my pleasure. Thank you. For more on the life and legacy of Andrew Haswell Green, head to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. There are no shortage of images to include that really illustrate the long life and the many accomplishments of this very important but often forgotten man. 
You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, on Twitter at Bowery Boys. We want to give a big shout out and thank you to all of you who support us on Patreon, who give us a small donation every single month, which we can pull together and produce the show every two weeks. We really could not do this without you guys. We want to thank you so much. And of course, a special thank you to... Uh, a you have a list of yes, names? Um, Amy W., Brian T., Mark S. and Victoria J. from Manhattan, Stephen K. from Brooklyn, Whitney A. from Queens, Alexandra R. from New Jersey, and Andrew H. from Illinois. Thanks to this group and to all 900 patrons who have joined us at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys. We have lots of little extras, a special patron-only audio feed for you. And, of course, advance notice on live events that we do around New York. So thank you so much to those who've joined us on Patreon. Now, speaking of live events, our shows at Joe's Pub are pretty much sold out. They, our, in uh, fact, are our, sold our, out. Our Halloween ghost story shows. So um, hopefully you got tickets for that. But if you didn't and you still like us telling ghost stories, well, <laughs> guess what? Next episode brings you. Would that be our annual ghost story <laughs> show, Greg? Can't wait. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Bye.